Good morning. Thank you, John, for uh, your introduction and for your leadership of the service this morning. Appreciate that a lot. Uh, it's a joy uh, for me to be here. Uh, known the con- uh, congregation for a long time and have a lot of friends here and hope to meet some some new friends today. Um, and it's a joy to worship with you. It's a joy to share briefly the pulpit with Jason this morning. Thankful for that. Um, and I want to thank uh, your congregation for uh, your support of the Laramie congregation up in Wyoming, uh, both uh, financially and also sending people up uh, once a month. That's a great encouragement to us. We're a fairly small congregation, and as is noted, we do have a new pastor, Alan Blackwood. Uh, he's uh, preaching his first sermon uh, this week. He led the service last week. They arrived last week, and we're really in a strategic location there uh, where the University of Wyoming is. A lot of people don't even know exactly what's up in Wyoming, but Laramie is where the university is. And God's blessed uh, ministry to students over the years, and so continue to pray for us and pray for the other churches uh, along the Front Range. Uh, this morning, I'd like you to turn in your uh, Bibles once again to the book of Acts, and we'll look at Acts 1 and 2 this morning. I'm going to read a portion of, of those two chapters, Acts 1 and 2. So if you turn to Acts 1, verses 1 through 14 to begin with, Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 14, and then we'll read in chapter 2 also. Hear God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after he had, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up, up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So let's, turn, let's look at chapter 2 now, verses 1 through 4. 
Chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And the divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I encourage you to keep your Bible open, have the scriptures in front of you, as well as the outline that's there for you in the bulletin. Uh, the Springs uh, Reformed Church has been in existence since 1981. It's moved location several times, actually, during that time. It's had a number of pastors and elders and deacons. This membership of the members in the church has changed over time. It's turned over during, during different times and years. And people have been sent out to other locations. God has used this church to bring people to salvation and to gather people into his kingdom, to teach them his truth more fully, and to help them grow as productive disciples of Jesus Christ. The Lord has even used this uh, church to uh, plant a second church in the Springs area, the Tri-Lakes Church. Several ministers of the gospel have been raised up in this congregation and developed. At this time, I believe you're at one of your greatest transitions in the history of the church. You're seeking a new pastor, uh, you're moving to a new building, and you're facing the changing times in which we're all living, whether we're in Colorado Springs or elsewhere in our nation or in our world. So it's a good time to ask the question, what kind of church? What kind of church do we intend to be as we move forward? The better question is, what kind of church does the Lord want us to be? How can we best accomplish God's purposes for us here in the Springs? How can we most effectively bring glory to the name of our God? What works does he want us to be about? It's a good time to ask those questions. And when we ask those questions, where do we go uh, for the answer? Well, maybe we look at 2,000 years of church history and see what God has done and how he's done things through that time. Maybe we look at the present and we ask, how has God used us or how has God used other churches in, in, in serving him? Maybe we talk to those most gifted in areas of preaching and outreach and guidance uh, for the church. And all those are not bad methods, but most of all we need to look at the scriptures to know what the direction is that God gives to his church. And it's not surprising because God's purpose for his church is one of his greatest purposes that he's put in the Bible, in the New Testament, a book that gives us the history of the development of the early church and I believe contains many principles that can help us to know how the Lord wants uh, to lead us in the days ahead. We have to be careful when we read narratives that we don't take all the examples and say, well, we should do this and we should do that. Uh, for example, we shouldn't do what Ananias and Sapphira did in the church. Uh, the the uh, teaching passages of Scripture interpret for us and tell us directly what God wants for the church. But I believe that we really do have a lot of principles in the book of Acts that are fairly clear if rightly interpreted. 
And I believe there's at least, at least 12 principles, maybe many, many more, in the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts about God's purpose for the church and the methods that we should use. And this morning I want to draw to your attention three of those principles in chapters 1 and 2, and then this evening we'll be looking at Acts 5 and 6 to gain uh, three more of these attributes or characteristics of the church. And so the first one I want you to think about and look at here in our text this morning is this. The church must rely on the Holy Spirit. The church must rely on the Holy Spirit. This is the first principle I want us to draw from these first two chapters of the book of Acts. It's really uh, just jumps out at you, this principle, right from the beginning. Uh, we sometimes sort of skip over the beginning and we get to Pentecost, but it's very obvious that uh, Jesus wanted the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit before they would set out on their task of witnessing uh, to Jerusalem and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so even in the first couple verses there, in verses uh, in, in verse uh, 4 and 5, you notice of chapter 1, uh, while they were staying there and meeting with Jesus during those 40 days after his resurrection, he said to them, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus was saying that to them while he was with them, and then as he's uh, preparing for his ascension there at the Mount of Olives, he says to them again, he says, and he gives them this task, you'll be my witnesses, and he tells them they're going to be his witnesses, but he tells them to wait in verse 8, because they'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then they go back to Jerusalem, and they don't immediately go out and begin to talk to their neighbors or go to the temple and talk about Jesus, but they are in that upper room uh, where they were after Jesus' crucifixion. They're there and they're praying together and they're assembled, maybe 100, about 120 people there, uh, including Jesus' mother and his brothers. It's one reason we uh, know that uh, his brothers came to believe in him after his resurrection. So they're there and they're praying and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, the Holy Spirit descends in the symbols of the wind, as we're born again by the Spirit and the fire, the power and the might of the Spirit. And Jesus had spoken of John will baptize you with water, but you will be baptized with fire and with the Holy Spirit. So this is fulfilled. And throughout the book of Acts, uh, not only here, we see how dependent the church was on the Holy Spirit for guidance, for wisdom, for, for power and so forth. Uh, the Holy Spirit is uh, spoken of at least 50 times in the book of Acts. And I counted just one time 11 places where it says the Spirit's described as giving the church the words to speak, uh, giving them the wisdom, giving them guidance, and giving them his power, as we've already said. For example, in Acts 8.29, uh, Philip was in Samaria, and an angel said, go down to the road leading south. And so he goes down to this desert area. Why, has he, why is God sending him from Samaria down into the desert where nobody is? But here comes a chariot along. And the Holy Spirit says, go to the chariot and talk to the person. He meets this Ethiopian man who's reading the book of Isaiah. 
and he uh, explains to him the meaning of Isaiah 53, that it's about Jesus Christ, the Savior who has now come. And the Ethiopian's baptized and goes on his way to Africa with the gospel, we believe. And in Acts 13, another example the Holy Spirit's leading is in uh, when the group are gathered to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas and others are there and they're praying. And the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, Set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to. And the first uh, direct missionary activity uh, is begun from Antioch as Paul goes forth on his first missionary journey. The book of Acts is entitled the Acts of the Apostles, but we can say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit which made the church fruitful. And so it is today. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit. Well, what does it mean today uh, to rely on the Holy Spirit? Does it mean that we should sit here and pray and wait for another Pentecost? No, I don't believe so. The Pentecost was the time when God, after Christ's death and resurrection, as promised, sent the Holy Spirit to fill his church. And we see a couple of other times in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit comes down in a special way uh, with the Samaritans and with the uh, disciples of John and a couple of other instances. But it's all the same. It's the first coming of the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts and at the time as Jesus has sent forth his Spirit, having been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. So it's not that we're sitting waiting for a new or for a new Pentecost, but the Bible does teach us to always seek to be filled with the Spirit. So what does it mean then for you and I today to wait on the Spirit, to rely on the Spirit? Well, let me mention about five things very quickly. Number one, it means not relying on our own strength. That's probably the first and foremost. The disciples might have felt, hey, we can go out and really accomplish things. We've seen Jesus. But we remember how uh, Peter failed so miserably. He was going to stand strong for Jesus before Jesus died. And yet I cut off, again, he cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. But then as he went into the garden, uh, he was humiliated. And three times he denied the Lord. And so it might be with the disciples again if they did not receive the Holy Spirit. And so waiting and not relying on our own strength. And we're always tempted to do that, to rely on our own strength. So that's the first thing not relying on our own strength. Not by might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah 4, 6. Secondly, it means that we believe in effectual calling. It means that we believe that it's as the word is preached, as the word is witnessed to, as the Bible is read, that all these things can only become effective if the Holy Spirit is calling a person to God and to Christ. <clears throat> and so as preachers and as those who desire to see people come to Christ, we need to remember that it's God who's going to work in their heart. We can present the message and we should present the message. And as preachers, we should do it as best we can. <clears throat> but it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the effectual working of God's Spirit. Third, we need to wait on God in prayer. So we shouldn't rush ahead foolishly. I'm saying this is a transition time and this is a time to think about the way God's leading you as a church, and the, especially the leaders of the church. The elders should be thinking about this and praying about this and not rushing ahead. I'm sure you've seen that already in the quick time you've been looking for a building that you want to be careful, of course. It's really interesting how the Lord uh, led later in uh, Acts 16, as Paul was, I believe, on his second missionary journey, and they were in... Uh, 
he was in parts of Asia. He'd been in Asia before, the, what's Turkey today, uh, Asia Minor, we call it. And so he was traveling around, and they were seeking the Lord's leading, and they attempted to go one place in Asia and another place in Asia, and, and the Lord prevented them in some way. And then Paul had this vision of a man up in Macedonia across the water uh, calling for them to for, he says, come over to, Mas to Macedonia and help us, the Macedonian call. And they concluded that God was calling them there. So with God preventing some things that seemed very good, he guided them in a certain direction. And the things that's really uh, astounding about that is that's the first time the gospel really went into Europe. And Europe, of course, uh, for many, many years after that, centuries after that, has, was one of the main places where Christianity was having a powerful influence. And so what seems uh, the best or seems the easiest or seems the right thing, we need to carefully consider and pray over. Wait on God in prayer. Fourthly, uh, relying on the Spirit means using the gifts of all the members of the church. The Bible teaches us that all the members of the church have gifts that should be developed under the direction of the leaders and used in concert for the growth and building up of the body. Are you uh, submitting yourself to the leaders of the church and submitting your gifts to the church uh, as God uh, shows you in the congregation how you can best serve him? And then maybe fifth and most importantly, relying on the Spirit means that we should seek to show forth the fruits of the Spirit as Christians. Paul says in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26, if you've been made alive in the Spirit, then walk in the Spirit. And it's unlikely that you'll be effective in any kind of Christian work if you're resisting the Lord's uh, speaking to you in your conscience about areas of sin that you need to depart from and, and give up. Congregation, the if you desire to be a church used for God's glory, rely on on God's spirit for strength and wisdom and guidance and power and for your sanctification and your kingdom work. Isaiah 40, 31 says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Second thing that we see here that we want to call attention to is in regard to the attributes or characteristics of the church. The second thing is the church must preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Number two, the church must preach the good news of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 14, uh, as the Holy Spirit has come down upon this assembled group of 120 people and has raised quite a stir, the people gather, and this is the time of Pentecost. There are people from all different nations. And Peter is, uh, stands up and he begins to preach. And he first of all explains what's going on. He says these people are not drunk as, as is being imagined. And so let's look at Peter's really first sermon here in Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 16. He says what's happening here is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And so in verse 17 through 21, he quotes Joel. And this is one reason we see uh, the Pentecost as a unique coming of the Holy Spirit. He says in the day, last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and so forth down through there. And then verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter uh, 
first of all, draws from Scripture and explains this event that's going on. He relates what's happening in their day, uh, particularly uh, the coming of the Spirit. He relates that to, to the Scriptures. He preaches from, from, that, from the book of Joel. And then, in really, the, really the heart of his sermon is in verses 22 and through 28. And he begins to speak about Jesus. He says, Jesus of Nazareth is a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. This was done here in this land of Palestine, in Jerusalem. But you yourselves know this happened. Jesus was delivered up, and it was by God's plan and foreknowledge. And the people, along with their rulers, crucified Jesus and killed him. But God raised him up from the dead. And then he uses scripture once more. He talks about, he uses Psalm 16 and shows how David, speaking of not suffering corruption, was really speaking ahead, looking forward to the Messiah, to Christ. And so he's showing that this Jesus who they saw in their midst is really the Christ, the Son of God. He goes on to speak about Christ's resurrection then. And again, he speaks of, he, and he shows how this is, this is what happened, that Jesus uh, was body was not corrupted, but that he was raised from the dead. Verse 20, verse uh, 32. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out, uh, you yourselves, what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then once more he quotes from the psalm, Psalm 110. This is what was prophesied, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. God the Father speaking to the Son. And so he concludes there in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then, uh, so Peter focuses, he uses scripture, and he proclaims Jesus from the scriptures. And then uh, the Spirit uses this to convict those who are listening. They say, men and brother, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized uh, for the forgiveness of sin in the name of Jesus Christ. So the church should be preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. As Paul said, I knew, wanted to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. This should be the heart of the gospel. This should be the heart of the message we preach uh, each Lord's Day uh, here in our churches. Every church that I've known uh, that's prospered has had a good preacher, and this church has had many good preachers throughout its history. And good preachers follow that pattern that we see right here and we see in many other sermons in the Bible. They use Scripture. They point us to Scripture. They help us understand Scripture. Uh, they proclaim Christ and him crucified. That's the heart of uh, their message. And they bring application to bear upon us. And notice Peter didn't need to make an altar call. Uh, would, all those who accepted Christ come forward. But the Holy Spirit used his preaching and his teaching and the things that he said to bring the people to faith and repentance. And so our church needs to continue to preach Christ and him crucified. We need to preach that good news. And as I said, uh, we, we in that, though we may not have an altar call, we do explain and answer the question that may be in someone's heart, maybe in our children's hearts. What 
what is it that brings me to Christ? What must I do to be saved? And we say to them, repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Receive him. We've seen a, a beautiful uh, demonstration of baptism today, and it's interesting the passage that Jason cho chose was the same passage that we're looking at uh, today. And it's neat to see a beautiful curly-haired girl there <laughs> um, and to see the congregation committing to helping her uh, come to know the Lord and her parents' commitment to teaching her in the ways of the Lord. This is for you and your children, as was pointed out this morning. And so this kind of preaching uh, leads to, to the growth of the church, too. It, it brings salvation by God's grace, and it brings sanctification, this kind of preaching to God's people. But also the church uh, grows, and that's what happened here in verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and then there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We need... God to continue to give to the Reformed Presbyterian Church good preachers. Pray for that. And how are they to believe in him whom, of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. We need preachers who will proclaim the whole counsel of God from pulpits and churches on the Lord's Day. We also need preachers who can go from house to house and into the highways and byways of society and compel people to come in. Our children must hear and believe the gospel in order to be saved, and the unchurched must be evangelized. Our final and third point this morning is the church must devote itself to the means of grace. Number three on your outline. The church must devote itself to the means of grace. What do we see happening then in verse 42? After these people have committed to Christ, have believed the message, do they just go away and that's the end of it? No. It says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Each of these activities mentioned in Acts 2.42 build you up in the Christian life. And together, they build you up as a church body. Let's think just briefly about each one of these. There's so much more we could say. We could have a sermon on each one of these. But first of all, the apostles' teaching. And I want you to just stop and think for a second. What were they teaching at that point? This is this first group of people who have come in. Jesus was with them for three years. What is the apostles' teaching? I think it was explaining what Jesus had done, reminding them of who he was. Some of them would have known of the ministry of Jesus on earth. Some wouldn't. And then doing a lot of what Peter did in his sermon in more detail, explaining why they're certain that this Jesus is the Messiah that was expected, how he is the Son of God, how his death on the cross is an atonement, for our sins, how he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. There was a lot of doctrine, and that's what it says, the Apostles' Doctrine. There was a lot of doctrine going on at that point, wasn't there? Teaching them just who this Jesus was and bringing a lot of, of the Old Testament to bear. They didn't have the New Testament, so bringing the Old Testament to bear upon that. And then certainly there was practical application, too. You know, a lot of these were, these were Jewish people or God-fears, and so 
they had had a lot of the ethical teaching of the Bible, but still that would have been brought home to them through their relation, new relationship with Jesus Christ. The apostles' teaching, using the Word of God, basically. And the Word of God uh, is what not only saves us, but is used to save us, but also sanctifies us. John 17, 17. William Greenhill speaks of what happens when preaching and teaching are lost from the church. Where the word of God is not expounded, he says, preached and applied to the several conditions of people, there they perish. Lay aside preaching and expounding the scriptures, and people will be scattered, run into airs, wander up and down as sheep without a shepherd. We need the preaching of the gospel. We need the preaching of the word of God. And it's not that there's, there may be sometimes one sermon that really may be what God uses to save you. Or one sermon that so strikes you that it changes your life remarkably. Or one sermon that really stands out to you and, and you begin to grow in a really unique way, a new way in the Christian life. But as someone has spoken to me and talked to me, it's really the continual preaching, week by week, that builds us up and blesses us and changes our lives uh, remarkably over time. And we need to understand that. It's the regular preaching of the gospel, the regular preaching of the word that we feed on that we need. So that's the first thing mentioned. The second thing mentioned is fellowship. And I think it's, it's very important. That's not always included as one of the means of Grace, one of the three means of grace that's typically mentioned in Reformed uh, doctrine, Reformed circles. But it is interesting that fellowship is here. And maybe we could say fellowship affects all three, the hearing of the word, the prayers, and the sacraments. Our fellowship together is a congregation. And that doesn't occur just as we're hearing the preached word, but it's our fellowship meals. In this case, um, they were having the breaking of bread, and that probably included a kind of fellowship meal at that time, a, a large gathering of what the Lord's Supper was part of it, but it was also just a gathering. But fellowship is so important to the church, and I want to just encourage you that that's been one of the blessings of the Springs Reformed Church and really of Reformed Presbyterian Church for a long time. I hope that if you're new to this denomination or new to this congregation, that you realize that fellowship is right up there as just as important uh, or just right up there with the preaching of the Word, with the Bible study, and, and it's not just fellowship, have, hey, we have a good time together, although that's part of it. It's sharing our lives together. It's helping one another in crisis. It's all those things, but it also is fellowship around God's Word, and it's one another exhorting and encouraging each other. And then there's the breaking of bread, which I've already mentioned, but I'd like to just use something I heard yesterday at a conference up in Cheyenne, Cheyenne Dr. John Masters was up there, never heard him speak before, but he was speaking about assurance of salvation at the Cheyenne Reformation Conference. By the way, Cheyenne's up in Wyoming. That's the capital <laughs> of Wyoming. It's only about 100 miles from you. Um, so he uh, was talking about um, assurance of salvation, and uh, he was showing how the means of grace build our assurance of salvation. And one that we may struggle with, and I've struggled with along the way, is just how does the sacrament of the Lord suffer? How is it a means of grace? How does it build you up? And he at least gave a really helpful uh, answer to that. He noted that there's three words uh, used in Corinthians and and in uh, the, and I think in Matthew's gospel, three particular words used 
before the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. One is uh, a memorial uh, to remember, one is a proclamation to preach, and one is uh, sharing in the body of Christ. Um, and so he, he said, uh, as we remember during the Lord's Supper, we remember what Christ did for us. And I think we all do that, but that's part of the grace that comes to us as we just remember what Christ did during the Lord's Supper. That's the memorial part. And then it says we preach Christ as we have the Lord's Supper. So uh, we're pro proclaiming Christ to one another and to any visitors who are with us. And that's part of the blessing, too, that we can meditate on in many ways. And then sharing in Christ or sharing in the body of Christ, the, the church body and in Christ himself. Uh, there's a place in Corinthians where it says if you're eating food offered to idols, you're sharing in the idol. When you're uh, take, partaking the Lord's Supper, you're sharing in Christ. So those were three words that were helpful to me, share, memorial, uh, proclamation, and sharing as you meditate on the Lord's Supper. And the last thing that's mentioned here as a means of grace, a means of growth for the Christians is the prayers. And probably that's particularly talking about them going to worship at the temple. Uh, but it certainly involved prayer. And so uh, prayer and worship, worship would cover all of this, really. But, but prayer is so important, as we know. These are not spectacular means. They are ordinary means, but they are effective means for your growth in grace. The Reformed Presbyterian Church once had, once had a mission to Native Americans in uh, the territory of what is now Oklahoma. And I've read a, a history of that, and it's interesting, uh, some of the ways and methods and uh, things that the, the missionaries used in that situation. But one thing I picked up is that they would often talk about the Jesus road or the Jesus way. That's one of the main ways they communicated the Christian life uh, and, and the Christian gospel to the Native Americans. You know, you're on the Jesus road or you're on a different road. You're following the Jesus way. And the, and the Native Americans would talk that way in response. They'd talk about whether they were on the Jesus road or how difficult that was or how they were drawn back to a different road. The Jesus road then starts with, the, starts with confession and baptism. But the Jesus road continues as we uh, follow and use, make use of these common but essential elements of the gathered church. Every Christian and every church need these. When they're done well and accord with God's direction, they attract Christians. They draw in believers hungry for spiritual food. Invariably, when I've asked people what brought them to a church that they're happy in, invariably, they will say the good preaching of the word. And then secondly, they'll say the loving fellowship of the people. I heard that time and time again. God uses those things not only to sanctify his people, but to draw in new believers. And those were uh, the truth. And I hear a lot now, uh, uh, worship, uh, reverent worship is important to people also, thankfully. So I want you to just note that, as I close, that the people devoted themselves to these things. And I want to encourage you to continue to, to devote yourself to the means of grace as they're outlined here in Acts 2.42. And again, we see the Lord was adding then in verse 47, not only were they uh, used for salvation and sanctification, but also for the growth and outreach of the church. Verse 47, the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved.
May God do that in your congregation. Today we've seen three attributes of a church which God, uh, which God has designed and which he has constructed for his glory. Reliance on the Holy Spirit, preaching Christ and him crucified, and devoting ourselves to the means of grace. As you adhere to these and follow God's word, may he bless you greatly as you enter this new chapter in the life of the Springs Reformed Church. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we pray uh, this morning, uh, especially for the children who are here who have seen a baptism and been reminded of how it shows the washing away of our sins and how it uh, shows uh, a baby being born and becoming a part of the church. And we pray that the children will be reminded that most of them have been baptized in the past. So they're part of this covenant, part of a covenant family and part of the church. May they understand truly that we are all sinners and we can only be forgiven because of what Christ, Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross for us. May they repent of their sins and give their lives completely to Jesus, follow him every day of their lives. Lord, we thank you for this congregation of your people, for its history, uh, both uh, way back and more recent for the many blessings that you've brought upon this congregation, for your grace, which has been bestowed upon them uh, in many, many ways. We pray that you will continue to bless and prosper them, cause them to walk in your ways. Keep them united as they go through changes at this time. We pray that you will bless every member of this congregation, direct and strengthen them. And we pray for your blessing and for the Front Range RP churches, the churches along the Rocky Mountains here. Lord, we pray that you might be glorified in our churches. Lord, that your name might be lifted up, that Jesus might be preached, and we might dwell together in peace and in unity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.